Linda Burdish literally gave herself away. Linda was an outstanding teacher who felt that if she had the time, she'd like to create great art and poetry. When she was 28 years old, however, she began to get severe headaches and her doctors discovered that she had an enormous brain tumor. And they told her that her chances of surviving an operation were about 2%. Therefore, rather than operate immediately, they chose to wait for six months. She knew she had great artistry in her, and so during those six months, she wrote and she drew feverishly. All of her poetry, except one piece, was published in magazines. All of her art, except one piece, was shown and sold at some of the leading galleries. At the end of six months, she had the operation. The night before the operation, she decided literally to give herself away. In case of her death, she wrote a will in which she donated all of her body body parts to those who needed them more than she would. Now, unfortunately, Linda's operation was fatal. And subsequently, her eyes went into an eye bank in Bethesda, Maryland, and from there to a recipient in South Carolina. A young man, aged 28, went from darkness to sight. And that young man was so profoundly grateful that he wrote to the iBank thanking them for existing. It was only the second thank you that that iBank had received after giving out in excess of 30,000 eyes. Furthermore, he said he wanted to thank the parents of the donor, and they must indeed be magnificent folks to have a child who would give away her eyes. And so he was given the name of the Burdish family and decided to fly in to see them on Staten Island. He arrived unannounced and rang the doorbell, and after hearing his introduction, Mrs. Burdish reached out and embraced him, and she said, young man, if you've got nowhere to go, my husband and I would love for you to spend the weekend with us. So he stayed, and as he was looking around Linda's room, he saw that she'd read Plato, and he'd read Plato in Braille. She'd read Hegel, and he'd read Hegel in Braille. The next morning, Mrs. Burdish was looking at him and said, you know, I'm almost positive that I have seen you somewhere before, and I don't know where. All of a sudden, she remembered, and she ran upstairs And she pulled out the last picture that Linda had ever drawn. It was a portrait of her ideal man. The picture was virtually identical to this young man who had received Linda's eyes. Then her mother read the last poem that Linda had written on her deathbed. And this is the way it read. Two hearts passing in the night, falling in love never able to gain each other's sight. What a powerful story that is. Now contrast that with the case that was heard in the late 1920s where a man walking along a pier tripped over a rope and fell into the ocean. He came up choking and screaming for help and being unable to swim, he sank. And although his friends heard his faint cries in the distance, they were too far away to get to him to help. However, only a few yards away was a young man sunbathing in a lawn chair. 
The man, an excellent swimmer, it was later discovered, heard the cries and did absolutely nothing. He watched indifferently as the man finally drowned. The family, in contrast to the first story I related, was so upset with this extreme display of apathy that they sued the sunbather. They lost. With some reluctance, the court ruled that the young man on the dock had no legal responsibility to save the drowning man's life. While indifference may not be illegal, it is certainly not the way Christ taught us to live. Apathy is completely contrary to Christianity. The refusal to risk involvement while it may be a sign of our times, it's certainly not the biblical branding of the church or of the individual follower of Jesus Christ, is it? Any spirituality, wrote Brennan Manning, that does not lead from self-centered to an other-centered mode of existence is bankrupt. Let me say that again. Any spirituality that does not lead from a self-centered to an other-centered mode of existence is bankrupt. The gospel will persuade no one unless it has so convicted us that we are transformed by it. Two of the major features of Jesus' life was that he loved God and he lived for others. In an interesting grammatical but practical twist, he also lived for God and loved others. And friends, no amount of spiritual finagling can excuse us from those same responsibilities. Am I right? If we are his followers, they are in fact the epitome of Christian discipleship. In a tense moment of confrontation toward the latter portion of Jesus' ministry, a smart-mouthed up-and-coming expert in the Old Testament Jewish law thought that he would be the hero of his day by exposing the shallow, freewheeling rabbi who taught with his own authority. And it wasn't the first time that arrogance had stepped up to the plate and took a swing at the arm of eternity who presented truth with unmatched finesse and unbiased simplicity. Luke records the moment with which we have all become too familiar. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10 and follow with me as I read from verse 25. You know the story. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him and when he saw him, he felt compassion he came to him and bandaged up his wounds and pouring oil and wine on them, he put them on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. I love this story, and I hate this story. I love it because without anger, without a judgmental attitude, without sarcasm, and without apology, Jesus penetrates this lawyer's heart and puts him in his place. I hate it because I realize that no matter how much I'd like to see myself as Jesus in the story or the Samaritan, I all too often find myself in the pathetic place of the so-called religious right, i.e. those who are religious and think themselves to be right. Most of us dislike this parable because it hits us like a two-by-four smack in the face with who we really are and how unauthentic our Christianity can sometimes be. Talk about relevance. This story, this parable has relevance. If you and I dismiss this story as being outdated, then we are simply not living in the real world, or else, worse, we are flat out lying to ourselves. As Jesus tells the story, he in essence calls us to the forefront and asks us squarely, and I'll personalize it, he says, Russ, you fill in your name in the blank, do you really love me? Are you really my disciple? Because, Russ, if you don't love others, you can't love me. Jesus' ministry is rooted in his compassion for the lost and for the lonely and for the broken and for the destitute and for the sinful and the outcasts. He loves those who are outside the margin of social respectability, the forgotten ones. And you know why? Because his father does. And he always does things, Jesus does, that he sees his father doing. To be truly Christian, then, is to be truly like Christ. Amen? Amen. Charlie Brown once quipped, I love humanity, it's people I can't stand. (laughs) I've often quoted that. And that just shows how, where I am in this story sometimes. How truly sad it is that we frequently live by that philosophy, right? In Jesus' life and teaching, it is the flesh and blood person, not the generality who is to be treated with compassion. The person right there in front of me. Not the abstraction. That is without question what Jesus says proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that you and I have a spiritual pulse. That you have... And I have eternal life pumping through our spiritual veins that you and I are as one non-believer once identified someone in our church as, oh, that person's a Christian with a heartbeat. That's a great designation, isn't it? Let me ask you, would the people you meet from day to day refer to you as a Christian with a heartbeat? Would your friends refer to you that way? co-workers, family, because a heart that beats for God must ultimately beat for others as well. 
Let's unpack this parable a little bit. First of all, I want to bring out the provocation. Verses 25 to 28. This lawyer stood up and put him to the test. In other words, he provoked Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is it written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Now this seems to have been the aptitude of the day, right? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And it's not so far removed from that of most people today, is it? We all want to know what we can do. There is an inquisitive streak in people seeking spirituality that asks, what is the one definitive act, the one heroic deed, the one acceptable sacrifice that when I perform it, it would guarantee me eternal life. Don't you feel that the people are asking that question? In other words, what must I do to be saved? Rather than identify that gaping hole in a man's question, Jesus instead moves him into an area in which he himself felt most competent. Jesus points him to the law, to the scriptures. Verse 26, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? This guy was an expert in the law. What does it say, Jesus says? How do you interpret it? Quoting from Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18 in the Old Testament, the man answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you're right. You're right. And literally, Jesus uses a word from which we derive our word orthodoxy from. In other words, Jesus applauded the man for responding with an answer that was completely in line with the truth. Keep on doing this, Jesus says, and you will live. Was Jesus saying that we can be saved by living a good life? Was he alluding to the fact that we can love our way to salvation? Not on your life. Jesus was actually bringing this man into a realization of his own deficiency, his own sinfulness. Fact is, if we really love God with all that we have and we loved our neighbors as ourselves and we did it consistently without ever failing, we would indeed possess everlasting life because we'd be perfect. Without sin, on a par with Jesus. The question is, do you think you've done that? This wasn't the first time that Jesus was confronted with this test. In Matthew chapter 22, in verses 34 to 40, we read, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. This is Jesus now answering the question. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Again, Brendan Manning says, 
A Gentile once came to Rabbi Shammai and said, convert me to Judaism on the condition that you can teach me the whole Torah while I'm standing on one foot. And with a rod in his hand, Rabbi Shammai angrily threw him out. Then the man went to Rabbi Hillel and repeated his request. Convert me to Judaism on the condition that you can teach me the whole Torah while I am standing on one foot. Rabbi Hillel converted him. And this is how he did it. This is how he taught him. What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole Torah. All the rest is just commentary. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is a fulfillment of the law. Romans 13, 10. The problem is, is that no one of us can ever live up to that requirement, can we? No man was ever able to live up to the law perfectly. Not one save Jesus. And no one is able to. One slip brings failure. The law was not the problem. We are. So Paul says. Paul wrote again in Romans chapter 7, verses 12 and verse 14. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, 23 and 28. For no one can ever be made right in God's sight by doing what, is, what his law commands. For the more we know God's law, the clearer it becomes that we aren't obeying it. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. So with one well-aimed question, Jesus brought the man to the brink of his need and ours as well. Verse 29, the problem is pinpointed by Jesus in verse 29. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus was trying to get this man to see that no matter how much he adhered to the letter of the law outwardly, his, in his heart, he could never really keep it. No one loves God and his neighbor without fail. And judging by his answer, this law expert obviously got the message. Wishing to justify himself, he said, who is my neighbor? His answer should have been, this is what I think his answer should have been. But I can't do it, Jesus. I can't do what the greatest commandment is. I've already blown it on a hundred occasions, Jesus. I need help. If perfection is the requirement, then I'm lost. What can I do, Jesus? That's what he should have said. Had that been the answer, Jesus, I believe, would have likely told him exactly what to do. He might have said something like, come to me, Oh, you are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke's easy. My yoke's light. Take it upon you and you'll find rest for your soul. 
He might have said, hear my word and believe in him who sent me. He might have said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father except through me. But this lawyer never asked for help. He never admitted his inability, his weakness, his sin. Instead, he did what most of us do under extreme personal conviction. He dodges the issue. Completely dodged the issue. Rationalized his behavior, excused the shortcomings, justify ourselves. That's what we do. That's what he did. That's what humans do. Jesus had him. He cornered him. He may have deceived himself into thinking he had kept the first great commandment, but deep down he knew that he hadn't kept the second, and so he tries to backpedal. He plays it dumb. This so-called expert in the law wanted to vindicate himself, so he throws in a diversion tactic by raising quite another issue. He says to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor anyway? I mean, the law isn't really clear on that, is it? Who is my neighbor that I should love him as myself? And in that day, you've got to give the guy credit. In that day, it seemed to be a wide variety of opinions among the Jews as to who constituted a neighbor. Let me give you the cultural background here. The question is sort of valid that he asks. A lot of people ask a lot of good questions, but I often find, especially in situations like this, that as Ken Geyer says, the question is asked more to settle an uneasy uneasy conscience than it is to settle a debate. How often do you and I approach the word of God that way? Trying to find loopholes, limitations, loose definitions in order to justify some decision that we make or activity that we're engaged in or a lack of activity on our part. Loopholes, loopholes, loopholes. We always try to find them, don't we? That's what the Pharisees did. That's what this lawyer was doing. Can you answer the question, who is my neighbor? All the available data indicates that the Jews only recognize their own countrymen as their neighbors. That's the cultural background. According to the body of Jewish traditions known as the Talmud, an Israelite's neighbor was any member of his nation, but no one who was not an Israelite. They had perverted the command of Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18, and limited it to refer only to their own Israelites. In addition, they tacked on their own supplement. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus had previously exposed that interpretation of the law. In Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may, what? Be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Because we're all God's enemies, right? Until Jesus came into our life. Colossians chapter 1 says that we were at enmity with God, steeped in alienation. Rather than debate theological logistics, Jesus instead engages the man with a masterfully directed story. And here's where the portrait of conviction is painted. In verses 30 to 35, we don't have to read it again, but he talks about that good Samaritan parable that I just read. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among robbers. They stripped him, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. 
Interesting, the 17 miles of road between Jerusalem and Jericho is an extremely windy road, okay? Snakes and descends through the hills and is surrounded by ravines and cliffs and narrow passages through bare rock. The numerous turns and outcrops of the rock, cracks and crevices lining the road were criminal opportunities waiting to happen. Robbers would hide there. And they did. In fact, they happened so often that the road had earned a name, a nickname. The road between Jerusalem and Jericho was often called the Bloody Way. It was so notorious for murders and robberies that eventually part of it had to be protected by a Roman garrison. Along that road, a man had been jumped and surrounded by muggers. They beat him to a pulp. They assaulted him. They stripped him, not just of his clothing, but the language implies that they stripped him of everything that he had. If he had a donkey, they took it. If he had money, they pocketed it. Clothing, they confiscated it. Then they left him traumatized, half dead, naked and bleeding in the middle of the path. Down that road, that same road, by coincidence, came a priest. Jesus in telling this story, interestingly enough, doesn't even spiritualize the occurrence as a divine appointment. Read it. He doesn't say that. What's it say? Notably, Jesus says it was by chance in verse 31. Traveling toward Jericho, this priest was probably exhausted having served in the temple for the last eight years or so days, and so he prayed, praying there and offering sacrifices for the sins of his, of his days. From morning until night, he had preached. They were long, tiring days of spiritual service as well as practical responsibilities, and now this priest probably had some time off, and he was heading home. And as he rounds the bend, he's taken aback by the sight of this lump of flesh lying in the middle of the road. It looks like a fellow Jew, but it's hard to tell. He's curious, but not enough to go over to the man. In fact, Jesus said he crosses to the other side of the street and he walks right on by him, hoping like mad that the man doesn't call out for help. Now, the priest knows the law and he knows it well. This is how the law reads. In Leviticus 19, 33 and 34, it says, When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall love him as yourself. Interesting. It even says that if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall help it, it says in Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5. If that's what you do for an enemy's animal, how much more for a fellow human being who is your brother? Right? He knew the law, but that's not the portion of it that came to mind. He's probably thinking of the statute that says that if you touch a dead person, you shall be unclean for seven days. That's probably what this priest is thinking. But this priest is going away from the temple. His service is over. No matter, he doesn't want to go through the cleansing ritual. He wants to be able to go to synagogue on Saturday and teach. The fact is, he didn't want to get involved. 
It's like the guy sitting on the dock in the lawn chair watching the guy drown. He didn't want to get involved, period. Too much hassle. Pitiful but penetrating to our own hearts, isn't it? Mine too. Well, next, Jesus says, comes a Levite, another member of the clergy, a helper to the priests. He also knew he was obligated by law to help the man, but forget it. He said he has commitments in Jericho. It's getting late. He's sure someone else is going to come by and help. So he looks away and he crosses to the other side of the street as well. And on he goes. He ignores the tug on his heart to stop and help. He simply pushes it down and he buries it, hoping no one, not even God, especially God, will notice. But then a Samaritan comes along. Oh, boy. Jesus was provocative, wasn't he? A Samaritan comes along. You heard Jeff talk about what Samaritans were viewed like last week. He's thrilled to get out of the so-called Bible belt of Jerusalem. The church of the so-called religious right. Because there, that Samaritan is treated like dirt. Worse than an animal. Hated, despised. It's ironic that this story is identified as the parable of the good Samaritan because to a Jew there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. But remember who's writing this gospel. This is Luke's gospel. And Luke's audience is basically Gentiles. It's ironic that this story is identified that way. The Jews thought Samaritans were Half-breeds, part Jew, part Gentile. Assyrian, specifically. They were heretics because they only used five books of the Bible, as you heard Jeff talk about last week. They worshipped at the wrong temple. They had their own ideas about leadership and completely disregarded the traditional teachings of the Jewish elders. No self-respecting Jew would eat at the same table with them, and more, they would... They would probably rather eat with pigs than to eat with a Samaritan. Samaritans were so hated that the Jews actually cursed them in public, asking that God would exclude them from eternal life. Samaritans couldn't possibly have been candidates for God's saving grace. And yet Jesus tells this story and he makes the Samaritan the highlight of the story. Let me say this, if poster board and Sharpies had been available in those days, these hard-nosed, hate-filled, so-called pastors would likely have held up signs and placards that read, God hates Samaritans. Told you this was relevant. But this Samaritan man had a spiritual pulse. He had more godly compassion bleeding from his heart than the bludgeoned stranger had seeping from his wounds. In Jesus' terminology, he had a gut-level concern, compassion for the man lying in the road. This was incredible that Jesus would say this to a bunch of Jews or to this lawyer. Jesus said that this Samaritan not only saw the hurting man, but he felt compassion in a distinct godlike quality. As the Apostle Paul would later write for our benefit in, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. And so those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, it says in Colossians. 
Surely the priest and the Levite would have considered themselves chosen of God. Yet they lack the very thing that God's chosen people are supposed to display. This Samaritan didn't care what race the hurting man was. He didn't ask what religion he espoused. He didn't mull over whether he was a Christian or not, straight or gay, tattooed, pierced, Democrat or Republican, or otherwise. He simply saw a human being, a creation of God, desperately in need of care, and as far as he was concerned, that's all that mattered to him. And so he responded in verses 33 to 35. He came, bandaged the wounds, poured oil on them, wine on them, put him in his own beast, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And then on the next day, he took out money, gave it to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will pay you back. Notice the details Jesus gives as he describes the pattern of how God-like love was displayed here. Number one, this man saw the need. Verse 33, right? He saw the need. That's where it ended for the priest and the Levite. That's where it began for the Samaritan. Unfortunately, that's where it often ends with us. Seeing the need is only one step in the process of Christ-like love. These priests showed no heart. They had the biblical knowledge of their responsibility to meet the need. And they had the means. They had the opportunity. But they had no heartbeat for this man. That's where the Samaritan moved beyond doctrine to practice. So he saw the need. Secondly, he felt the hurt. Thirdly, he got involved. And fourthly, he gave his all. Isn't that just like Jesus? He risked his own safety by stopping. He poured his wine on, on the wound. He ripped his clothes and made bandages, possibly. He put the man on his donkey and he walked to the nearest inn and he gave up his time to stay with him all night during those critical hours. He didn't just drop him off thinking his responsibility ended right there. He actually took care of him. Then going even further out on a financial limb, he gave Two days' pay to a complete stranger for another stranger's continued care. Can you imagine? And not only did he give what he had, but the epitome of it all was that he actually went into potential debt for the man, promising to pay for any further expenses. He assumed responsibility and he never assessed any liability. I don't know about you, but. I am so far from my mindset most of the time. Is it yours? He saw the need, he felt the hurt, he got involved, he gave his all. In essence, he forgot about himself and he made God's day. This Samaritan. Unlike the men who claim to be God's representatives, this totally secular Samaritan in demonstrating what it meant to be a neighbor actually defined the meaning of biblical love. Love, as someone has said, doesn't look away. It involves itself. It inconveniences itself. It indebts itself. That's convicting, isn't it? Not just for this lawyer, but for us as well. Let me ask you, have you ever looked away? Not wanting to get involved? Not wanting to be inconvenienced? Now, granted, we can't save every single person on the street. It's impossible. 
That's different than coming across somebody that needs your help and you know that God's tugging on your heart and you know that he's moving you to help and you completely walk away. It's a different story. Is there someone in your life right now that you are knowingly avoiding not getting involved with even though you know you should? That's the question really that Jesus is bringing out here. In the end, Jesus slams the conclusion of the story home with one penetrating, proving question. Verse 36, which of these three, Jesus says, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? The proving question. And the expert in the law almost chokes on his answer. In fact, he can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. Look at what his answer was. And he said in verse 37, the one who showed mercy toward him. Literally the one doing the mercy with him. Again, Brendan Manning once made a statement that sometimes hurts me to read because I know that I have too often missed the mark as well. He said, according to the evangelical criterion for holiness, the person closest to the heart of Jesus Christ is not the one who prays the most or studies the most or the one who has the most important position of spiritual responsibility entrusted to his or her care. It's the one who loves the most. And that is not my opinion, he says. It is God's word who will judge us. It's interesting to me that Jesus never once mentions anything about spiritual help in this parable. Did you notice that? There's not even a hint of an evangelical agenda here. No fruit was ever mentioned coming out of this act. No prayer was ever said. No verses were ever quoted. No tracts were ever left. Deep compassion and loving action are the only things that are mentioned in this passage. Ron Kincaid points out that this parable suggests, quote, that when we think of our neighbors, our primary focus is loving, not winning, caring, not converting, serving, not saving. First off, it's loving, and then God will do the saving work if he opens the door. And here's why he says that. My take on it is that fulfilling the great commandment is what opens the door for accomplishing the great commission. You got to love God. You got to love God before you can love your neighbor. But when you love God and you love your neighbor, then you can make disciples. Right? Without the practice of the two great commandments, the Great Commission doesn't have a prayer. It doesn't have a chance. Love is the fertile soil for the seed of the gospel. The Christian that wants to make disciples must love people. A Hindu by the name of Gandhi once said this, you have to do the right thing. It may not be in your power, may not be in your time, and that, that there'll be any fruit come out of it. But that doesn't mean you stop doing the right thing. You may never know what the results come from your action, but if you do nothing, there will be no result. 
poignant command Jesus closes with in verse 37. He says, then Jesus said to him, Jesus says, go and do the same. Go and do the same. Go, literally, go and do mercy with someone. It's a proactive command. Go and do. How hard do you think it was for that legal expert to have the most central command in all of Jewish law exhibited by a man that he absolutely despised, a Samaritan? How do you think that made him feel? How hard would that be? It would be like Jesus pointing the finger of conviction at you and at me and at the church of Jesus Christ and saying this, secular society is doing a better job at loving such and such a group than you are. Does that give you chills? And you fill in the blank. Secular society is doing a better job at loving immigrants or the gay community or orphans or widows or the elderly or Muslims than you are. Now, I'm not saying that that's the case across the board, but in this case, this is exactly the parallel to what Jesus is saying to us. The question is, we need to evaluate whether or not that is true in our lives. Hopefully it is not. But it was true in this lawyer's life, and I dare say it is true in some churches' lives, some Christians' lives. I once read some results of a study done by Dr. Dudley Woodbury, professor of Islamic studies at Fuller, done over a 16-year period involving 750 Muslims from 30 countries. The number one reason Muslim converts listed for their decision to follow Christ was the lifestyle of Christians among them. Converts also identified the power of God in answered prayers and healing, unhappiness with Islam itself, and the love expressed through the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. But the telltale drawing card, and this is the key, that when Christ's love transforms committed Christians into a loving community, many Muslims identified a desire to join such a fellowship. That's the result of his study. Woodbury's research shows that when the church is being the church, witnessing to the love of Christ and of his transforming power, Muslims are drawn both to us and to him. See, Jesus was blunt in this passage of Scripture, and I'm, and I'm going to be as blunt as well. I ran across these convicting words. You may have encountered them as well. Maybe not, but here they are for what it's worth. Somebody once said, the hottest corners of hell are reserved for those who during a moment of crisis maintain their neutrality. But the ultimate question here, folks, is not who is my neighbor? Jesus never really answered that question in this parable, did he? Jesus' question to the lawyer that day was, which one proved to be a neighbor? Friends, there is a world in crisis both inside the church walls and outside the church walls. Don't spend your time trying to define who your neighbor is. Everyone is. Who's your neighbor? Everyone is your neighbor. Rather, Jesus doesn't say who your neighbor is. We should know who our neighbor is. Jesus says, go and be a neighbor to somebody. 
Love people. Love them as yourself. You cannot love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and not love your neighbor. As the late Cardinal Paul Emil Laguerre said when he left his mansion in Montreal to go live and serve in a leper colony in Africa, he said the time for talking is over. Recognizing the knees, feeling the hurt, stopping to help, giving your all, and forgetting yourself, that's not primarily a matter of our emotions, you know. Though they are involved, it's a matter of our will. Jesus' bottom line here is to go and do mercy with someone. Now, friends, following Jesus demands that we put aside all the non-essentials, stop playing word games, and come to the essence of things. That's what Jesus is saying. And the essence of Jesus' word to us today, here in this text, is simply this, is that a heart that beats for God will ultimately be a heart that beats for others as well. For the people around us. So, go and do mercy with someone. Go and give them Jesus. Jesus.